Hey folks, it's Jed Wolpaw here with just a quick message. We have switched over to a new platform, and you may start hearing some ads along with the episodes. This is really a way that we can continue to pay the growing cost of the services we need to keep the podcast coming to you without having to charge listeners. So we really want to keep the content free, and so we're going to start introducing some ads, and so if you hear them, you'll know what's going on. All right, thanks so much for listening, and enjoy the show. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets If you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have a somewhat different but fascinating show today. And with me, I have Dr. Trevor Gibbs. Now, Trevor is in private practice anesthesia, and we'll talk about that. He did his residency at Northwestern and then went straight back in 2007 to join a group where he still is outside of Chicago, and he's been in private practice. Now, that is not the end of the story, as you can imagine. Trevor, in addition to practicing anesthesia, also decided, and he's going to tell us this story, but he decided to become an inventor and to uh, actually invent and then bring to market a, um, a device or a, a, a something to help him in his practice. And uh, he's going to describe it a lot better than I can. But it's really an interesting story. And one of the things I love about Trevor is that he really, when, he, when we were talking, he expressed that he really wants to help other people who may have an idea of doing something like this, but have no idea. And rather than go through all the roadblocks that he had to face without any kind of uh, help, he wants to provide some of that help. I thought this was a great idea and something that might benefit a lot of folks out there. Now, let me say right up front that I have no investment in Trevor's company or his product. I don't own one. He hasn't sent me one for free. He hasn't sent me any money. This has nothing to do with that. This is really an attempt for us to provide some help to people out there who might have an idea and not know how to take it to the next step. So Trevor, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jed. Thanks for uh, having me on. I, I was just telling you how I've been listening to your show for a while, and and especially most recently listening to the ones on cannabis. I live in Illinois. It's uh, fully legal for recreational use now, and I'm just seeing it everywhere. And uh, that background information has, has been tremendously helpful. So I'm, I'm excited to be on it, and hopefully I can can pass the baton on with a little bit of information that, that some of your uh, listeners may benefit from. That would be great, Trevor. Thanks, and thanks for the kind words. So why don't we start by, you know, to say a little more about yourself than I did. Uh, give us your background. Uh, how'd you end up in Chicago? Is that where you grew up? And then, um, you know, what made you choose private practice and, and the practice that you ended up in? How'd you pick that one? So I uh, grew up an army brat. 
I lived, I was born in Germany. I lived there again in high school. I went to 10 schools in 12 years. We were on the go nonstop. Um, I bounced around and went to Penn State for college and then down to Wake Forest, North Carolina for medical school. And then I wanted a little bit more of a city experience. So I said, how about Chicago? And I went to Northwestern. Uh, there I met my wife. She's from Illinois. Uh, she was working in the hospital as well. Um, she's a dental hygienist in the dental clinic, actually. She actually did clean my teeth. And <laughs> that is how we met. And um, I got a job, like I said, outside of um, outside of Chicago in a private practice. I was um, I had an offer and had long considered staying at Northwestern. And uh, when I heard about this practice, it seemed to be a, a really good fit from scope of practice. Uh, it was a physician only practice, meaning that I, I didn't supervise uh, any other anesthesia providers. I liked the idea of doing my own case. Uh, I liked the idea of practicing all the things that we had learned. So I do uh, so, some pediatrics, I do neurosurgery, I do, you know, offsite anesthesia, I do blocks. I just, I, you know, when I was weighing um, academics versus um, private practice, I really like the idea of using the full scope of our training. And so that's how I settled down in my practice. Uh, just when you're evaluating practices, I was looking for one that was rather transparent and fair from the start. And, and, um, and we have that. So in our group, one of the things I like, we always want to be, treat people from day one, basically like they're part of the group. So they come to all the meetings, they hear about what's going on. We don't do things behind, behind their back. Uh, you have the same call, you have the same access to vacation all from the start. And, uh, so that seems like something that was a fit for me and, uh, I haven't left. So, uh, I guess I must've been right. Yeah, that sounds great, Trevor. Thanks. And, you know, I will say that that's a common uh, thing I hear from our graduates who, who choose pra private practice is that they want, at least at first and maybe forever, to really not narrow down their practice. They want to be able to do kind of everything. And, and there's no question that in academics, you don't. Uh, you know, I haven't done OB anesthesia since residency. I certainly haven't done cardiac or peds or um, I haven't even done hardly any neuro. Like we're very subspecialized. Sure, and sure. um so, you know, that's uh, obviously it's a choice I made. I'm very happy with what I do, but I completely understand that people um, may want to get a, a, a wider range of things that they can do. And so that makes a ton of sense. Um, so, all right. So, you know, you're there, you took this job, I'm sure you got settled in and, uh, and at some point, and tell us, tell us more, at some point you decided um, that in addition to practicing anesthesia, you were going to go down this path of inventing something. Um, was that like, were you a kid who grew up, you know, with inventor kits uh, and, and always had this passion or, or what led, tell, tell the story, what led to it? Definitely the saying, you know, necessity is the mother of invention happened here. You know, my, I went to college to become a physician. So I did, you know, uh, biology. I didn't do any business classes. I didn't do engineering classes. The math classes I took were the, the calculus, you know, we had to take. And uh, so I was just going along my way, practicing anesthesia. And one day uh, I was on call. It was in the evening, a big patient, bowel obstruction, you know, all the things you don't want, beard and, and a distended abdomen and other comorbidities. And in my practice, like I said, we are physician only, so I don't supervise anybody. So in the evening, there's nobody there, no anesthesia tech, uh, no uh, CRNA or resident to, to give me a hand. And I'm uh, rapid sequencing this patient, a little bit nervous as, as we all might be in that situation. And oftentimes many providers and me at that time set some of the things right on the patient's chest because it's a convenient place. I push that propofol for the rapid sequence 
And as I'm going for the succinylcholine, it falls off the chest, rolls off the chest and rolls down on the ground. And I'm reaching over to get it. And it's like, oh, I'm ducking under the arm board, you know, to reach it. And uh, by the time I get it and I pick it up, you're already hearing, you know, that change, boop, 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 you know, going down. During that time, as the nurse had reached, you know, there was a nurse in the room. She leaned across the patient. The IV pole had rolled. It rolled around over the IV tubing. So I'm trying to pull the tubing up to get the port. And I've got my socks. The sats are going down. I'm like, this is a mess. There has got to be a better way. I'm going to get, there should be everything right here. I'm going to order one of those anesthesia stands after the case. And, uh, and when I finished the case, fortunately, I got the guy intubated. Uh, everything went okay. And I went and I'm, I looked for an anesthesia case, uh, stand. And there isn't one on the market. I looked high and low, searched all over. Um, and I wasn't able to find one. And uh, I began to think then about, hmm, what would I want if I, was, if I would make one? And uh, I had a few other scenarios where I thought, you know, this would have helped me there. And so that was my impetus right there. I said, I'm going to, I don't know how to do it, but I'm going to figure it out. Well, first, Trevor, that story made me tachycardic. And now I'm waiting for my heart rate to come back down because <laughs> I can imagine, well, maybe I can, I can certainly imagine it happens all the time that the meds roll off the patient or, you know, you put them on the edge of the bed and they not get rolled off of there. Uh, you know, and that's incredibly frustrating, but but uh, wow, I you know the the scenario is not one anybody wants to be in, and to be in that alone with no resident, no CRNA, no tech, um, just a, a you know an OR nurse who who uh, may be helpful, um, but uh, is certainly not anesthesia trained. So kudos to you for recovering, um, and I can and so interesting that you thought of it. So what you what you wanted, which I think we've all been in this situation, is a convenient, easy place to put your whatever, meds, IV equipment, uh, A-line equipment, whatever it is. Um, and we all know, I was telling you before we started recording, that the other day I uh, was in a similar situation with a, an obese patient taking up the whole table, didn't have anywhere to put the meds, um, was looking around for a mayo stand, couldn't find one, and um, thought to myself, ah, you know what I want? I want Trevor's device. <laughs> and, um, don't have one, but, um, but I, I totally got that desire of how nice it would be. And so, um, so tell us a little more specific. So we, it, was a, it was a table that you wanted. So how, what did you actually come up with and, and how? I mean, obviously you, you, you can't just say, you know, I want a table. So how'd you, how'd you narrow it down? How'd you specifically design it, uh, you know, and come up with an exact thing of what you wanted to build? Well, obviously I started to think about the things from that case I would have liked. And, uh, something that often happens for me is my suction tubing falls down right as I need it. You know, where you, you're sticking that yank hour under your pillow, under your mat, nowhere it should be. Right. And it's falling down. So like, I want something that's going to, that's going to hold my suction tubing. So it doesn't fall just when I need it. And so I begin to think of some kind of clip. And so all the corners, I have these little corner grips or like these little fingers of rubber. Um, they're latex free, but you know, that you can wedge things in, whether it's to hold the endotracheal tube when you're intubating. So I started to envision that I wanted something adjustable so that it could adjust and so that it could grab maybe the bed or an IV pole or a gurney. And so I started to think about that. And, and uh, I wanted something obviously like from that story to hold my IV tubing. I didn't want my IV tubing. You know, we, some people tape it to the bed or sometimes they don't, or, you know, it's getting, it's in the bed sheets. So I needed something to hold my IV tubing. And then I thought, well, if I have this thing here, maybe it should hold my circuit too. And those are the things that I started with. Um, I needed it to do that. And then I started to think about how the surgeons, 
They have a back table, kind of like we have our anesthesia machine, but they don't set stuff back there. They have the mayo stand. It's right there. And I was like, okay. So I, I wanted some sort of tray and, and I started just to kind of literally in, laying in bed and different sketching, different designs. And, and that was my first thing. I, I had a clamp and an adjustable neck and some sort of customized tray. And that's what I had uh, when, I, when I was ready to set off. So I love this. And I can already tell that you must have been that resident who when the attending, when I walk in the room, everything looks pristine. It's all <laughs> organized. The ivy is taped on a blue towel on the bed with the stopcock in perfect position that, you know, everything's labeled. You know, it's like you, th those are the residents who you walk in and you think, wow, this is a superstar resident. That is still me. When I, before I leave the room, I've taken my circuit off the machine, the, you know, the, the bag, I've thrown it away. I've hung my, uh, my uh, cords and uh, over the IV pole. So it's easy for the next person to come in and clean still that's, and, and maybe that's why this was attractive to me. Uh, that's that is the way I operate. I think you'd like have liked supervising me in my day. One hundred percent. I mean, <laughs> that is. I I tell you know every once in a while you have like a a CA one who does that, and I always say, wow, you are way ahead of the game. If you're already <laughs> doing this as a CA one, that is awesome. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. Okay, so so you know what what I think is so easy to um, and I just want to emphasize this because. I think a lot of people have probably had the same frustrations. Can't find, I mean, I, of course we all have, right? I, my, where's my suction? Oh, you know, uh, it's, it fell on the ground. Or, you know, I, the only place left is to jam it under that probably disgustingly dirty table, right? Where, right. You know, under the, the mattress, uh, which is, of course, it's then going in the patient's mouth. Sure. Um, you know, or uh, where's that stopcock? And, you know, is it fallen? Is it twisted? Is it under the pillow? Um, so, you know, I think, not to mention what we already talked about, which is where am I going to put my meds and everything else? So I think we've got, but, but I can tell you that there's, I have had those same frustrations and, and have not designed anything to fix it. And even if I were to, I think I wouldn't have the first clue. I mean, you, so I think what's key is that you didn't just recognize the problem and you didn't just say, okay, I need a fix. You also went through and found you, you, I want to almost say you broke it down into smaller pieces. Does that seem right? Like you, I, you didn't just say, where am I going to put stuff? You said, well, I, what stuff? And, and is it, it's not all stuff that just needs to lay on a stand. There's some stuff that needs, a, that needs to be uh, held with a clamp, like suction tubing. There's other things that, you know, we might normally tape like a stopcock. There are things that need to be squeezed, like the suction tubing, and other things that you can't squeeze too much, like the IV tubing. Right. There are, and then there's where do you put this thing, right? And and sometimes you have an IV pole in a in a convenient position. Other times that might not work. Uh, and sometimes you have a bed you can clip stuff on, and maybe other times maybe it's a special robotic bed that you can't. You know. So you kind of broke this all down. Does that? I mean, did you consciously do that to try to break it down into component pieces? You, I did think. I mean. I, I did think through the different challenges that we had, what was reasonable to put on that. There are some things I worked through that uh, I thought I might be able to do, but then it was too complex to do. So yes, I did think about the different challenges and what would be reasonable on one, one apparatus or one device. Okay. Awesome. So you've got, you did some sketching, you did some thinking, you, you did pros and cons of, of, of each thing. You came up with what you thought you wanted. Then what, right? Cause I think if I had to pick, uh, as someone who's never tried this, but if I had to pick the kind of biggest point of where I bet people who have good ideas get stuck, it's, well, I have this idea, but I have no idea what to do with my idea. How would I translate this into reality? So, you know, tell, tell us a little bit about that. How did you go from this design you had come up with on your own to the, making it something real? 
Well, my first thought was not, hey, let me form a company. And actually, even when I came up with this idea, I was like, I think I'll do it myself. I didn't realize that you would have to form a company with it. It just, it may sound obvious to everyone in the world, but to me at the time, I just thought I'll make this product and it'll just go out there magically somehow. Um, so I started to think, okay, well, let me look at some of the companies that are out there, you know, whether it's Stryker or I don't know, some med device companies. And, and one of the things I found intimidating, because I didn't have any patent or even any idea about intellectual property. I had never seen Shark Tank, uh, had never watched it until after I started this process and kind of became interested in other people's journey. So I went, as you go to a lot of the sites, whether it's some of these major distributors who, who have some of their own products like Sharn or, or whatever, uh, they have messages about that you should protect your idea before you meet them. And here's, here's what Striker's page says. I have it written down because it, 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 it kind of scared me off a little bit. It said, please only submit unsolicited ideas after you have first taken steps to obtain patent protection for such ideas. By submitting an idea, you agree to seek and rely exclusively upon your patent rights, if any, as defined by the claims of an issued patent, and that you will not submit suggestions for ideas that are subject to protection by design patents, copyrights, or trademarks. That's meant, that was kind of scary to me. I was like, well, I don't have a patent. I guess I can't submit it. You know? And at the time, it didn't make sense. Now I understand that uh, if they don't have this and you submit an idea to them and then they're already developing the same idea, then you might say they stole it. But at the time, it just worded me off. So I thought, well, I guess I can't do that. I don't have a patent. So uh, I guess I'm not going to contact Medtronic or these bigger people. Well, now what? So I, I, you know, just kind of letting you know, now there are a lot of other things you could talk to. You could talk to uh, innovation labs, prototyping labs, accelerators, incubators, all these things. But I didn't know. And what I did find was this organization called SCORE. It's like um, Service Corps of Retired Executives. It's a national organization. They have mentors all over. Uh, It's a free uh, organization. They have lectures, but they also have mentors. And so there was a chapter in my area. And I forget how I came across it, just doing some Googling. But there was a mentor on there who had been an engineer and had a patent and uh, got the device out and then eventually sold it. So I thought, well, he seems like kind of a fit. I emailed him and he said, "Uh, okay, I have a lot of people come to me with ideas. Please make a little presentation and, and we'll talk. So uh, that was my first step. I, I met with him. I took, and so then I really began to think about things. I took photos uh, without patients in there, but of our operating table, our anesthesia machine, of the side rail of the operating room table. I got downloaded images off of anesthesia journals and stuff I Googled to try and communicate to someone who's never been in the OR the scope of what I was trying to fix. And so I sat down and I met with him. And he listened and he said, you know, I see a lot of things come through. I think, I think this maybe has some legs. So he knew some people as, as a good mentor does. He knew a, uh, a patent attorney. So we met with someone who through the organization gives a free hour to anybody just to kind of give you some ideas. And then he also connected me with a project manager at a prototyping lab that is part of a university nearby. And that was, that was really my first steps. So, you know, key things you mentioned there, mentorship, right? I mean, if you happen to know somebody who has done this, then that's great. But if you don't, then who would, how would you find, right? It's a big question mark. And so how did you find score? Would you just Google like uh, help for inventions or? I had come across, so they have something associated with my local library. And I think I had been in there and seen maybe a, a poster for it or something. And so I just on a whim of desperation was went on their website and I saw mentorship and I clicked around and, oh, this is business. 
and maybe they could help me. And I just came across Bruce's name and uh, reached out to him and, and got lucky that, that he was able to, to, to get me going in the right direction. He hadn't done medical device, but he didn't, he was close enough to be able to, to get me my first couple steps. Yeah, it sounds like it. And one of those was meeting with this patent attorney. And did that lead to a patent? Is that a necessary first step uh, before you kind of go any further? Uh, I wouldn't, I don't know that it's a necessary first step, but uh, a full patent. But one thing I would recommend to anybody is there's, um, is something called a, um, a uh, provisional patent. I don't know if you've heard about those, but a provisional patent uh, is something that you can submit the patent office does not review it. It only costs about a hundred bucks to submit. And basically from the day you submit that you have one year to submit a full patent application and you will get the priority date of the date you submitted that provisional patent. And, and so what that does is you write down everything you need, you know, and drawings, it doesn't, it's not nearly as formal as the real one. You just have to have all the general ideas there. And once you have that, then, then you can submit the full one at any point. So then you can really talk to people and you've got that as, as kind of some protection. So I don't, you don't necessarily need a big patent. Um, and you might even talk with a patent attorney about helping you with the provisional just to make sure you have all the, all the information in there. Because to some, uh, my understanding is you can't put a lot of new information in the full patent. It has to most have been in that provisional. Okay. So I would say that is a nice, affordable first step if you're looking for a little bit of um, protection. Okay. So did you do that? I did that. So okay. we didn't do it that first day. Uh, there is a non-disclosure. There is a uh, agreement with the patent attorney that he wouldn't tell other people. And so there's a there's a little bit of a balance, right? You know, potentially someone else could be trying inventing the same thing, right? And if they submit it one day before you, they have priority. And it's not first to invent; it's first to file. That is the way the new rules go. I don't know if you know much about this, but used to be you could prove that I've been working on it in three years and I just filed the patent now, but really I invented it then and you would get it. They don't mess with that anymore. The first person to turn the paperwork. But on the other side, uh, you know, you're 20 years from the day you file at the end of your patent. And also from the day I filed that provisional, I have one year to figure out, do I want to pay for that full patent? And so I was balancing. And what's that cost? What's a full patent cost? You know, it can be anywhere from 10000 to $30,000. I think I've been closer to probably over 30 now because I have wow. a patent in Canada. Uh, we filed in, in Europe as well. Uh, and that's a whole, a whole nother process. Um, and then I just made a strategic uh, bet that, you know, I didn't want it in all these other countries where I would have to litigate it because there's no patent police, right? There's nobody out there saying, oh, you don't have a patent for that. Somebody, me or representing me would have to see a violation and then they have to do something about it. So what are the chances I'm going to see a violation in Southeast Asia? I'm not, you know, so I decided to, to, to let those go. Okay. Um, and so I would imagine when you get to that level, I mean, you're spending tens of thousands of dollars filing a, a formal patent, unless you happen to be an attorney yourself, you probably need a patent attorney, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, uh, the patent attorney that I first met with is, is the one that I ended up going with. He's a, does a hundred percent intellectual property. And, uh, he was really good. He let me write, uh, things that, that, um, that I could write to save myself a little money because they're obviously paid by the hour. For instance, the background, what's the need for this device? He said, and he, he was really good about going through it and explaining, you know, the reviewer for this, you need to explain the need for this. Why does someone need this and why would it need to be protected? And that stuff, obviously I knew. So the more of that that I wrote, he, he was willing to work with me to let me write the, those different things. And we worked together and as much as I could review off the clock. He did that to, you know, as a, you know, boot 
bootstrapping, very small company. Uh, that was a big help. Yeah, I, that's great. And uh, do it might vary. I don't know from attorney to attorney, but is it is it an hourly rate? Is it do some some people say, okay, look, you know, you pay me this much now, and then if you're you know you pay me a certain percentage of the profits, kind of thing. I mean, how do they work? There are all kinds of those things out there. Um, you could probably find a relationship with different companies. Mine was strictly an hourly basis. So he had no rights to the the apparatus. Uh, he just gave me advice on how to write it and also just counsel on on how things would go if there's a violation of my patent and, and, and strategy on how you want to time things because – like I said, there's cost at every step. And so uh, it was strictly an hourly basis. He doesn't have any other things, but I have heard of other things going on. Um, you know, some of those big companies out there you see advertised, invent help and things of that sort. Um, you might want to talk to people before you talk to some of them. They, 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 you know, I've heard that some of them can be a little, I don't know if predatory is the right word, but maybe um, if you're uh, a little naive in the area, they might charge overcharge or things of that sort. So just, like every step you would go through any process, do your research, talk with a couple people. Uh, you can, you know, after this, always send me an email. I'd be happy to let you know what I know or put you in contact with someone that I trust. That's a great offer. Thanks, Trevor. I'm sure people will take you up on that. Um, what, uh, let me ask you what the best way for people, email is the best way if people do want to do that. You can email me at Trevor Gibbs at anastan.com or if you go to the website and just click on, I guess there it's info at anastan.com. You can reach out that way. Uh, but I'm on LinkedIn, Trevor Gibbs. Uh, you could find me there um, and, and happy to help anybody because, you know, we're, we're kind of in a community, right, of anesthesia providers. Absolutely. That's very generous of you. Thank you. Um, so at some point, uh, well, I guess let me just, people are wondering, you know, what when, we're, when I think of lawyers, I think of them charging quite a lot per hour. We're talking like three to 400 an hour kind of thing, more or less. Is that the ballpark? Right. So my guy was 325 an hour. Um, but you know, if you w easily can spend $500 an hour or more, depending on who you find, uh, yep. th th this, that, that was the rate I had, which is still not cheap, you know, when it adds up the hours, but, uh, yeah, it's kind of middle of the road for, uh, for intellectual property lawyer. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. So at some point I imagine, and you, you alluded to this earlier, you must have started a company, mm -hmm. um, to, to, build around this device. Um, tell me about that. How'd you do that? At what stage of the game did you do that? So once we had some prototypes that I was going to have people looking at or thinking about, you wanted some sort of protection. You know, you wanted that corporate protection if for some reason some lawsuit would come up or someone would be injured looking at it, making the product, all those things. So, you know, uh, through SCORE, this organization, they have some different lawyers and I found a, a corporate attorney to help me draw up um, uh, drop and pick a corporate structure. And that's another thing that could be a whole other separate discussion, but whether you want to be an LLC or a C corp or an S corp, those type of things. But uh, initially I started out as an LLC. And then uh, based on some of the, the changes in tax laws, we switched over to a C corp and that's what we are now. Great. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I know very little about it. I, I, ACRAC is an LLC. That's all I know is the LLC part because uh, same thing, you know, obviously someone could listen to this and say, I'm going to invent something because Trevor, I heard Trevor talk on, on ACRAC about it. And then they're in, in the middle of inventing, they slice their finger off and then they sue. Uh, and right. all they can do at the moment is sue mm -hmm. ACRAC, which has a net income of zero. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we're in good shape. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so you, um, 
you uh, started off with as an LLC, and I think you're right. We don't need to get and don't have time to get into all the nitty gritty of the difference between a LLC and an S corp and a C corp and all that. But the bottom line is there are multiple different ways you can structure your company. My guess is, but tell me if I'm wrong, they all provide some level of protection, like you said, so that you can't be sued for your personal house and personal, you know, money savings and car and everything by someone who, um, you know, is is uh, harmed in some way or thinks they're harmed by your product. Absolutely. And, 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 you know, if anyone ever gets to that step, you'll obviously meet with a lawyer who says it's very important to keep all of that separate from your personal finances and all that. If, if there's any blending between that, then, then they can go after you. So they, they, there's this thing, and maybe they talked about the corporate veil. You don't want to pierce the corporate veil. The money that goes into the corporate account stays in the corporate account. Uh, you have to have minutes of an annual meeting. And there's all these requirements that, that, someone, that, that is out there. Anyone can Google it and find it. But it is important to keep uh, any business, uh, yours or mine, separate from your personal life. Yeah. Yeah. I think that sounds good and is good advice. So, all right. So you uh, met with this lawyer, started as an LLC, uh, at some point made a conversion based on tax laws and stuff. Was that before or after you filed your provisional or permanent patent? That was after. That was after I provided the, prov- uh, submitted the provisional patent. Okay. Like I but said, once the- I was doing things that I thought might need corporate protection and, and everything I'm trying to, was trying to put off as long as I had to for a time and a cost reasons, you know, don't, didn't do them till I, I really felt it was the necessary step. Okay. So now we're at a point where you formed a, a company, you have applied for provisional patent, you're working on a permanent patent application, you're working with a lawyer. Are you also during this time, you know, doing more design and, and, uh, you know, what's happening with the product itself? So, yeah. So I filed that provisional patent after I had my first prototype. So my first 3D printed prototype. So, you know, I met with that uh, mentor. He put me in touch with a project manager who then had a uh, engineer that he worked with. And we all had a meeting and I brought my drawings and I brought some pictures and I kind of gave them the same, um, same uh, presentation I had given to that initial mentor. And through that, they made the first CAD drawings, very rough CAD, you know, computer, computer assisted design drawings of, of what this might look like. And it was not, I mean, much less detailed than what we have, but it was somewhat similar to, to what you would, you see today out there, uh, with my, my product. Um, so I did that. I made that, uh, we revised it and then we 3d printed up our first version of it. And when I took that into the operating room, not for patient use, but just to see, okay, will this grab the operating table bed? Will this grab the IV pole? Will this, will this work? And once I said, yeah, or before I did that, I filed the provisional patent because if somebody saw that, then there is a way to invalidate your patent, even if it was a staff, you know, not, you know, like a, you know, a maintenance staff or anything like that. So before I took that out where anyone who was not under an NDA might see it, that's when we filed. And NDA is non-disclosure agreement. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So important, you know, and, and I would imagine that while this could sound paranoid, I mean, what you've really laid out here is you're going to put this much time, effort and money into something. It's not worth taking the chance, right? Like just make sure you cover your bases before anyone could see it, file that thing. And it might not even be someone who, 
is out there, you know, trying to undercut you. It might be someone who's had a similar idea, but they couldn't quite figure out how to conceptualize it. Then they see it and they think, oh, that's what I wanted to do. Right. And so then they feel like, oh, yeah, I mean, I was already there. I just uh, you just gave me a little bit of push. But if you haven't filed yours and they file theirs, then right. you're done. Right. Yeah. Now, um, remember that you can you can sell something without as long as someone else doesn't have the patent. You can sell things. You can make money on pat- without a patent. Um, and, and patents are a lot of money, time and effort. And so just because you have a patent doesn't mean you're going to make money. I mean, the percentage of people make money off their patent is under 5%, you know, so, uh, it's, it's a consideration to decide you're going to go through with that. And like I said, and as you mentioned there, I was just working on the provisional patent now. So that, that is a nice option to put out, not that much money and get the idea where then maybe you can go talk and we can talk about the options of how you might want to take it with, with one of those bigger companies. Um, yeah. but yes, I wanted the protection and through this process, I think a lot of anesthesia providers are at least myself, are a little bit conservative in nature. You know, we wanted to make sure everything is conservative. And I thought with this other venture, I'm going to go for it a little bit more than I usually would in my day, my regular life. You know, when there's a chance to be conservative or go for it, I'm going to go for it. And that's pretty much at every every split in the road, that's what I've done. What's a little bit more getting out over my skis? All right, I'm going to do that one. Whether it's, okay, I'll pay for the European patent. Maybe I'll lose the money, but but maybe you're, it's going to be popular in Europe too. So, um it's a little bit of an, I don't say alter ego, but but an opportunity to do something not only different in, in the type of stuff that I'm doing, but the way I approach things as well. Yeah. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code CHAMPION and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet, place your money line, prop, or parlay bets with the king of sportsbooks today. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotion, promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C., Absolutely. All right. So you, so you, here you are, you've got your provisional patent filed. You come in to the operating room just to try it out. So that's you, you were saying, so you're, so how did that work? Your initial prototype, you had 3d printed it, you brought it in and what'd you find? I found, okay, it, it works. I could see that there would be a version of this that would do what I wanted to do. Uh, the clamp uh, was where a lot of our it's, it's kind of, you look at it, it's just a clamp, but there are a lot of things that we had to put together to get it to land in the right spot and to be able to grab all these different things. And it did that. It grabbed the side rail, it grabbed the IV ta- bed. Um, okay. It did that. And then this tray, yep. The IV clips in there and the, 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 okay. All the things that I wanted to do, it did somewhat. So I thought, all right, we're ready for the next step. Let's make, let's fix all of these. And I mean, I went home. I remember trying that. What I did was I took it in one night when I was on call and it was quiet. And I was like, okay, I'll just clip it on here. And there's nothing going on. And boy, all, I don't say all night, but for a long time I was sketching, okay, this needs to be this size. And, and over the next couple of years, I kept in my bag a set of calipers and measuring, like I said, the thickness of the side rail on the bed and thickness of uh, the gurney rails on, on your transport beds and then the inpatient beds, how thick are the rails and all the different, you know, I was measuring things all the time. And so from then, we just went through a series of revisions, you know, of 
of you know making everything a little bit better and, and getting it to the point where it was ready for the next type of prototype. So we did 3D printing and then we got to something, I'm like, okay, this is still, the 3D printing material is a little bit weak. It was a little bit heavy. We need something that's closer to the real material. So we did something called urethane casting, which basically pours urethane into like a silicone mold and gives us something that's much closer to the final material we were going to use. And we were, when we got there, then we could really test the product. Now, let's back up a second because, so first, who's we, you and like um, your mentor or yeah, who, who's and, working with you? Me and uh, the engineers I worked with and then the prototyping lab, my project. And where manager. did you get, where did you find the engineers and how did you get a lab? So um, my, my, the mentor, uh, Bruce, uh, knew of this, this prototyping lab uh, that, that was nearby. And so I went to them and they knew the engineer. And so, uh, the, and the engineer and, you know, the engineering firm, I guess I should say, but it was just one guy I worked with most of the time and then his computer drawing guy. Um, and so those guys were people I was emailing all the time. Okay. Here's a picture of this, here's this. And they all worked on an hourly basis as well. So I didn't have to hire them. They were contracted and still remain that way if I need something now. Okay. Um, so, you know, you got, got access to this lab at which I assume the lab came along with these various molds and things you just explained. Yeah. They have, you know, they have a large 3d printer. They have all kinds of, you know, hardware machinery to, to kind of, I don't say Jerry rig, but make rather more primitive prototypes. So things that they need to cut metal or wood or, you know, just for conceptual purposes, they have all that in there. Now, you know, even just up to this point, and we're not yet at a, a product that is ready to be sold. We've talked about a lot of expenditures, right? There's the the hours for the patent attorney. There's the hours for the engineers. There's the you know whatever money you have to pay to use the lab. There's the materials. Um, is this all you're coming out of pocket, or or did you at some point apply for some funding? I self funded. I, to this point, I'm all self funded, and I self funded for quite a while, um, and then I. Um, serendipitously came across another company who was interested in my product. A guy I trained with was a cardiologist that knew someone was a CMO in a medical device company, and they were interested. Um, and at the time, it was sounding a little bit attractive. You know, as you mentioned, expenses go up. There's a lot to do. I needed some help. And so I was at a crossroads. I was like, what do I want to do? And uh, I, uh, I, I had had some some people say nice things. Oh, this sounds like something I might like, but people say nice things. So I said, I, I got together with some of these people and I said, all right, um, would you be willing to not only put money and a significant amount of money, but time to help the project along? And if they were willing to do that, then maybe they, one, it would be the help I need. It would be the money I needed. Um, then, and also some validation. Okay, they actually like this idea. They're not just patting me on the back and say that guy's a little bit nuts. And when I had that meeting with, it, with several people, then and they said, yeah, we want to do this, then I said, okay, we're going to stay independent. And again, taking the conservative route versus taking the, the getting out over my skis a little bit, I said, let's go for it. And uh, from that point forward, we again, you have to set up an investment structure. You have to write, uh, you know, a kind of a brochure of all the financial risks they're going to take. And that was a whole process. And then if you're taking investors from out of state, something else, again, you know, as you go along the way, you have the, some people say the challenge, I say the privilege or opportunity to learn about something that you've never done before. And so uh, I did a lot of learning about, about how to take investors and, and value the company and, and uh, get ready for the next step. Yeah, so I can't imagine how how much learning there must have been along the way. So 
how and what what do the and this may be obvious, but uh, what what do the investors get in return? Do they get stock? Do they get a piece of the company? They got stock. Yeah, they got stock, okay. and some of them were able to earn additional stock based on the role, you know, and time continuing to help with the company. And is that uh, do you, is that something you negotiate with them? Like, okay, you know, you you pay this much money and this much time, you're going to get X amount of stock. And and is there a way to know? I mean, if you said a thousand shares, I mean, I don't know what that means. Is is, is it a does that? If there's only 2,000, then I own half the company, right? So, right, right. So, you know, you have to define what percentage of the company those shares represent. Uh, you talk about things like non-dilution clauses, right? So, you know, I give you 1,000 shares, and then I make it the company 10 million shares, right? You know, in the, in the next day and sell them to other people. So, uh, you know, I obviously wanted to do everything fair. I know these people. And so that was something mostly I was working with the attorney on what would be uh, typical, you know, unusual in this process. And then I presented it to them. And does this sound okay to you? And they all said, yeah, that sounds like a fair valuation, a fair investment cost, a benefit for helping. Uh, it seemed that everyone, and there was an element of trust that they trust that we've known each other for a while and that they trusted that I would not try to take advantage of them. And I assume you, uh, you know, keep, or maybe, maybe I shouldn't assume this, but I would think you'd keep like at least 51% for yourself so you can control. At this point, yes. I mean, now if you would take a larger investor down the road, then that would that, that may change things. But at this point, yes, I have the majority of the control, um, mostly because I just have I don't want to say a, I have a vision of where I want things to go. And if if you can't do that, then then it might be a little bit frustrating. So I, I don't want to give that up just yet. Yeah, I, I would think so. So, okay. So you now have a product that's getting more and more robust. You have a company, you've got some investors. Um, you, uh, now what, uh, you know, you were still haven't sold anything. So wh- how do we get from where, where you are now, uh, at that point to, you know, what's the next step? So we, you know, finished a more complex prototype, uh, and we just did some final revisions and now it's time to make, um, to make the injection mold, right? So injection mold is, and I decided I wanted this to be made out of um, plastic. It's light, it's flexible, it's pliable. If a patient hits their head on it, as opposed to a Mayo stand, there's a little more give. So we picked a non-porous um, light plastic uh, to use. And then, and, and then we, so I thought that would be a nice material. So rather than making it out of stainless steel, I'm going to make it out of plastic. And to do that, we needed a mold. And uh, so I had some learning to do on plastics, you know, and uh, molds are very expensive, like, like very, very, they can be, uh, mine was not a million dollars, but they can be, you know, and the mold is determined, determined by the complexity of it. So there was a lot of thinking about are we going to make it all in one piece? Are we going to have a couple pieces that we then um, heat sink or kind of weld together? And so the next step was figuring out how and where we're actually going to make this device. Where are we going to make it? Where are we going to store it? How are we going to package it, label it, uh, and on and on. So uh, there are a lot of steps. I'm not sure which uh, which we want to tackle next, but uh, uh, yeah, it was uh, well, making, just of- making the device. Yeah, making the device. So, you know, obviously... There might be, I could imagine, right? You have a, a large, very complex device. You probably are going to not have it just printed in one or, or molded into one giant thing. You're going to have pieces that you then either, as you said, heat sink or, you know, even that the the um, end user assembles, right? Like Ikea style. Um, right. But I would imagine that the, the less of that, the better, both in terms of durability and also just ease of use for the buyer. 
Um, what did you end up with? Is this something that comes out whole or is it assembled after the mold? So the, the clamp is made out of uh, two pieces of plastic, right? So there's two pieces of plastic and then we have a, a pin that they pivots around. We had a custom-made spring. And then there's something I didn't know about called overmolding. So if you see a piece of plastic and it's got like maybe a piece, like part that's rubber for grip or something, that requires two molds. So you make the first piece and then you have another mold that where they will pour that other material around so that it kind of fuses to it. So I wanted my my clamp to have some some frictional surface on it for where you grab it and also where it would grab the IV pole. So we made molds, we made over molds, um, and and it was a balance of cost to keep. Uh, like you said, we wanted I wanted this really to be durable. I wanted this. I didn't want this to be to keep breaking and people buying more. My vision wasn't to just create some disposable trail. So I wanted it simple so that it's reliable. That's why my clamp is just one simple clamp, not a bunch of moving parts and my tray, same thing. So uh, everything on the tray is one piece, except for the thing that holds our anesthesia circuit was made separately because that was just too complex really to do in one shot. But the way it attaches to the, that tray can come off. Should it break, you can replace it. But um, it is a very simple design. It's just uh, basically a slot it slides into. Uh, again, like you said, I wanted it simple and reliable. And we were able to do all that except for one part in, in one mold. And so that makes it a little faster to make because the guy just kind of takes it off and, and it's ready to go. And it was it was more reliable. And, and as a small company also, I didn't want anything that was going to have to be recalled. That might sink us as well. So yeah. I wanted to send it out and know that there's not going to be too many complaints. I'm still amazed at how much is going into this without yet knowing it'll even sell. So you've got you know, you've, you're building this mold, which you said, you know, though yours wasn't, could be up to a million dollars or more. You, you have, um, you know, you're then at some point, obviously going to start producing them, right? Yep. Presumably you have to store them somewhere unless you're going to keep them in your garage. So you're paying right, for yeah. storage, right. packaging, right? Mm-hmm. You probably have to put this thing in a box. Um, right. So all these expenditures. And now at any point, did, do you, before you, you know, build a million of these things, do you go out and, try to make sure someone's going to buy them? Uh, well, to some extent, yes. You know, and um, as you, as I found, you're, you're, or at least I feel like I'm almost one degree or two degrees of separation from almost every anesthesia provider in the company country. You know, you think about guys who went to college with, who went to medical school, guys who went to med school with, uh, residents and, and people you just cross paths with or people in my practice who trained other places. So I was able to get feedback from different parts of the company, country. My sister is a nurse anesthetist out in Boston. So just able to ask around to see, would this be of benefit to you at all? But you're right. I mean, even with that, it's hard to get fully objective feedback because you can't really put it out there until you've registered with the FDA, you have product liability insurance, uh, until you have all the things in place to protect patients and to protect yourself um, to to really get the feedback. So it's a big leap of faith to, to know whether whether it's going to be worth it. I mean, it's a, as I told the people, you have to be willing to lose every dollar you put in this. This is not buying mutual fund. It's a high risk investment. And even there are many things that, that are good ideas and they don't make it for a million different reasons. And, and it still could be, that still could happen to me. I mean, you know, whether, you know, you're, you're keeping your head above water and whether you take off or whether it's worth it um, are all still uncertainties that, 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 that me, every company has, but, but certainly one at my stage. Yeah. So you mentioned some important things, I think, uh, FDA approval, because this is a medical device. Mm-hmm. At what stage did you embark on that? 
We, well, I started it probably a year before we were going to hit the market and you need to find somebody to help you with that. And so the first thing you do is you Google FDA approval or assistant and you find these companies online and they're, you know, they were like for $55,000, we can register and keep you compliant every year. And like $55,000, you know, yeah. uh, I might not have that many sales in years, you know? So uh, I went on a website that uh, has a lot of freelance people for all kinds of things. And there's a surprising number of people who have medical device regulatory experience on there. People who work for, or still work for these large medical device companies. And I found several of them and interviewed them and found people at a pretty reasonable rate who helped me not only navigate the FDA, but every medical device needs a quality program. And, and, and they educate me on how we have to regularly review all our feedback, any non-compliance issues, any, any problems, and help me set that all up and deal with that. And should there be any audit, someone that could help me navigate that as well. And then he had to go audit where we had it made. And, and there's just a lot of things to do. And, and I read the FDA site as much as I could just so I could communicate with them. But you're going to need some help. And to find it in an affordable way, you have to do a little bit of digging. Okay, great. So you need someone to help you along the way. For the FDA, that makes total sense. And it's good to know that there are quite a, quite a range of potential prices you can pay. So worth, sure. as you said, spending some time getting different quotes, so to speak. Um, okay, so FDA. And then how about you mentioned um, uh, insurance, as in, uh, you know, pay, essentially, what if a patient gets hurt by your device? Right. Uh, because while you may be a corporation, at some point, your corporation hopefully will actually have some money and right. uh, you don't want to lose it all to right. uh, a lawsuit. So how do you how do you approach that? So, again, I um, did a little digging, got a few names and uh, you, you're going to need what it's called product liability insurance. And uh, so I talked to a couple of different people and I found a, a terrific commercial insurance agent. She's just been great through this process with helping me get quotes, not only in the United States, but different countries. Uh, if you need higher coverage, different creative ways to do that, to keep it affordable and help us uh, protect ourselves. So yeah, uh, product liability insurance is what you need. You'll need a commercial insurance agent. Uh, if you don't know one, uh, or even if you do, I would ask around. Some people, I, the first person I talked with said, oh, it's gonna take me 60 days to get a quote. Um, the person I, I uh, chose is just had it in a week. She's like, I can have you, your, your policy up and running in a week. And everything that I've done with her, she's extremely prompt. And it's so nice, you know, not just with, with this, but, 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 you know, running your house or anything. When you find somebody that does things in a way you expect and promptly, it's just so awesome. Because there are many people I've hired along the way that just don't deliver the way they do. Um, and it can be very frustrating. I imagine. Okay. So, I could be wrong about this, but I would imagine that for your device compared to, let's say, like a implantable cardiac defibrillator, we're talking probably about a, a much less expensive insurance, right? I mean, the chances that someone's going to get hurt by this table are a lot lower than something like that, right? Absolutely. So they're going to want to know what category of FDA product it is, right? So if it's one, two, or three, is it a life-sustaining device? Is there a patient contact? Uh, does it? Is it a is it a sterilizable device? I mean, do you have to, if you have to stand by that sterilization process, that's obviously a little bit more expensive. So all those factors. And another factor is the amount of them that are out there. And that makes sense, right? There's more risk when there's more people using them. So my claw, my policy escalates the more that I sell, right? There's a sure. minimum of a certain number of sale each year. And then at the end of the year, they review that. And if I've eclipsed that, then I owe a little bit more on my policy. Sounds reasonable. 
you mentioned sterilization. That's an interesting point. Uh, so it obviously needs to be cleanable. Mm-hmm. I, w- is this something that has to be like autoclavable or just probably not, right? You can just wipe it down. We wipe it down. So it, we, we chose polypropylene, which is a non-porous plastic, so that it can be wiped down and it shouldn't harbor bacteria and can be cleaned off like all the other surfaces that are kind of plastic, whether it's the you know, EKG leads, our anesthesia cart behind us, all those things are wiped down. This can be cleaned in the same way. Polypropylene is a sterilizable plastic, but as a company right now, because of cost reasons, right, you need validation that that when it's sterilized, is able is truly clean, right? And so that that's quite a process to get that validation. And then there's an insurance cost that goes with it. And so right now we haven't broached that. I have put it through the autoclave. I've put it through different, you know, ethylene oxide sterilizations, and it it stands up to it. But we do not sell it that way. Do not recommend it. I would never say that it can be sterilized at this point. It's just again a strategic decision we've made to this point. Okay, so you've got. Your FDA approval, I assume. You got that yeah. at some mm-hmm. point. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So you've got navigated that. You got your insurance. You've got your mold. You've made some of these things. You um, you know, you've gotten uh, a lot of people expressing interest. Um, at what point do you start selling it? Um well, so we launched, right? We we launched at a wonderful time, right? The, you know, just before COVID. So it really makes it, uh, and reps can't go in anywhere. But basically our launch was just an announcement that this is available. And that was where we just, and that was near the end of 2019. So literally just before COVID. So we, we announced it and we start reaching out to dealers um, that have sales reps and things of that sort. And over the next several months, um, it's a process, right? They don't just bring you on. They've seen a lot of things come and go. And so they want to do their own due diligence. They want to talk to their key opinion leaders and things of that sort. So finally, I get some dealers to come on board. Then there's a lot of contract negotiations, how many you know samples they get per rep and what's their territory. And uh, they have exclusive rights to that and a lot of that. And the, basically we sign those contracts and then COVID hit. And so, uh, you know, we, we, as soon as we had the devices ready, and like you said, all the regulatory stuff was done, we were ready to launch, but that was just the pro- starting the process of bringing in our sales, our sales roots. And uh, that was, a, and it's still a process, it's still growing. We're still adding different people to help us sell it. We just expanded into the Middle East. Um, and certainly we're in Canada and things of that sort, but it's, it's as things grow probably slower for my company than if Stryker would bring a product to market because they have all those steps already taken care of. And it, you know, let's just say that some, someone out there thinks I want one. (laughs) Can they, can they get one? Or is this like, you have to have a bulk order for a hospital kind of thing? No, no, you can buy them. Um, you can buy them individually off the website. Uh, I don't sell them, but one of my dealers does sell them, uh, online on his website. So it does go to a third party site. Again, that's just, you know, I had to think about that. Um, I didn't want the, you know, on my website to worry about uh, protecting someone's identity or credit card or things that sort. I don't know the rules on selling medical devices across state lines. So uh, someone can buy it in small quantities. But the best way to buy it is literally through if you just send me an email, you know, and then I'll put you in contact with a dealer who can give it, give you a free trial and and explain it. And and, uh, that's really the route that we want. We want people to be able to try it, know they like it, and then and then go that way. And what does one cost? If I wanted to buy one, what would it cost me? 
list price is $375 and you get the tray and the clamp. Uh, and that's reusable. Uh, some of them, the, the initial ones are being, they're in their second year of use and, and doing just fine. So you're going to get, I'm sure, I'm sure they're going to go for years and years. Uh, it's, it's a single fixed cost. And that's, that's what I wanted. I didn't want some kind of recurring cost. I thought it would be an easier sell to your hospital that, Hey, it's one fixed cost. And, and, uh, so yeah, 375 and it's reusable. Yeah. Great. And that strikes me as very reasonable. So now, Let's, I mean, I think it, it, what make, makes most sense to me is your group or your hospital buys a certain number of these so that there's one in each OR or whatever, right? But if, let's say, somebody's hospital isn't going to do that and they just want one, is it, it, is it something you imagine you could kind of like bring with you to work and mm -hmm. use for the day and then take home? Because oh, yeah. obviously, if you left in the OR, you're never going to see the thing again. Right, yeah. It's the tray, like I said, detaches. Um, and the, the thought is if the tray breaks or maybe some, down the road, I've had a lot of requests for uh, other trays. Like, oh, I want a cardiac anesthesia tray or a pediatric anesthesia tray or these have expanded out. I've sold them to perfusionists and different things, but at any rate, the tray comes off and you lay it next to the clamp stand and, 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 and it doesn't take up much room. You could put it in the bottom drawer of your anesthesia cart. You could slip it into your book bag. Uh, it does not take a ton of room. So yeah, there are some providers that say, I just want one for myself and they carry it from location to location. Mm, love that. Okay. So obviously not, not the world's ideal time to start right before COVID, as you said, for a variety of reasons, but um, how's it looking? I mean, uh, you know, ha have you had, uh, it sounds like you've sold some number, yeah. uh, you know, is, are you feeling good? Like this, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling good. So actually what happened was COVID actually in some ways was a challenge, but in some ways it's been an opportunity. So we came out with an initial version, generation one, and that came out, we did have sales during COVID, not as many as you would have liked for a lot of reasons. And, and all the med device, um, companies that I work with or, or sales reps are hurting because they can't go in and sell all the things that they want to sell, my product being one of them. Um, but I got enough feedback to indicate some of the early problems or not problems, but things that could have been better. And uh, so basically we had the opportunity to come out with our minimum marketable product. And then we incorporated that and we upgraded actually the part that attaches the clamp to the tray to something that's much more versatile and much more stable. So our generation two just launched just here recently. And it feels so good because it's so much better. You know, we have people that tried the first one, said that didn't cut it. And the second one said, we see a lot of uses for this one. And, and what so, was it about that? What was So the difference was the, the clamp? Not the clamp, but so there's a part that attaches. Uh, initially, when I had it, we have a clamp and then there's an attachment to your tray. And in between, I had something called a gooseneck, which you may see from like an adjustable lamp or light that has a clamp and it moves around. And what I prioritized when I conceived this was oh, someone would have it on clamped on the OR table and then you'd move over, maybe you clamp it on the IV pole and then you go down, maybe do a lab draw out of the feet if the arms are tucked and you'd clamp it down there. And so I wanted the speed of not having to adjust anything. But when you would clamp this apparatus to an IV pole and you'd bend that gooseneck, if you put too much weight on it, it would drift and mm. some things could potentially come off. And people were frustrated with that. They would rather... Uh, I found something that with basically a, a thumb screw and a mm -hmm. dual ball and socket and it locks in. And so it's a little more effort, but, but that is not an issue for people. They would rather have it stable. And so we just based on our initial feedback had a strategic, we made a strategic decision. It ended up being, I don't want to say the wrong one, but yeah, it was the wrong one at that point. And we've, we learned from it and we have got a, a much better product. So and we came out of who, COVID. Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. So, yeah. So for people who, who bought 
generation one, do they get like an upgrade to generation two or? Most of them we've upgraded if they've reached out to us. We told our reps, go back, give them the better one. Uh, we want them we want them to, to, to yeah. have what they expect. And so for those that were interested, uh, we have sent the reps out with the new one uh, to, to see if this is more attractive to them. Yeah, that's great. Great of you as a company. So and tell me how what what I may have just missed the connection, but why do you say thanks to COVID? Was this because people were trying no, it during well, COVID? You know, when you come out with, so we came out with the first version that uh, had some things that could have been better. Um, yeah. Not that they were dangerous, but they just ended up not being what people wanted. So if we had had not had COVID, then our reps would have gotten in front of everybody. Mm. A lot of people would have been disappointed and that would have been their first impression. Gotcha. And now the uh, their first impression is going to be a product that is just so much closer to what everyone envisions when they see the photographs and the videos of, of the product. Gotcha. That does, that is fortuitous. That's great. Um, all right. So, um, so that's where we are now, right? We are, uh, you are at us in a point where you've got generation two, you were able to take feedback from users and, and make some, make an upgrade. You're very happy with the product. And, um, now, now we see what, uh, what happens. And it sounds like we're talking international here. So you've got the United States, Middle East, Canada, uh, maybe some others. Yes, absolutely. So we are, uh, we would love to go to Europe. We have interest from people that want to sell it there. And we have lots of people reaching out that want to buy it there. Same in Australia and New Zealand, but there are um, regulatory expenses and things of that sort that we haven't made the decision to make that move yet. So uh, at some point we plan on being in Europe, but uh, it'll be whenever it makes right from a dollars and cents standpoint. All right. I'm going to ask a couple of questions. And if any of these are like, you can't answer them because, you know, I don't know, might, might mess up future business. Feel free to, to take the fifth. Okay. But um, so one is, you know, this sounds to me like something that, you know, already is starting to be successful and could easily be very successful. At some point, I have to imagine that somebody like Stryker or, you know, the equivalent is going to come and say, we want to buy you. Would you do it? I mean, obviously it depends on what they're offering, but you know, like, is there a piece of you that feels like, no, like this is my baby. I want to keep it and run it and see where it goes or, and you know, or is it, would you say, well, Hey, if you, if you offer me a big enough paycheck, sure, you can have it. Well, you know, throughout this process, I've said, I always do what what, I'm for whatever makes sense, whatever works. And so I would certainly listen, uh, you know, to what, to what they offer. We, I'm always doing things with it, so that if I did need to sell, we're set up for that, right? So uh, professional bookkeeping, redundancy in the corporation. So there's other people, God forbid something happens to me, that they know what's going on. And so you built it in a way that, that w- would be attractive. I've liked the process. And the more success you have, the more fun it is to get things moving. So I'm not shopping it around. Um, but I imagine if someone came to me and then there was going to be more medical device opportunity down the road, then I would be, I would be open to it. I'm not, I'm not dead set one way or the other. It's just part of the journey. So, yeah. Okay, great. Now question number two, let's say that that happens and you make enough off this that you don't have to, you don't have to do anything else. Okay. Mm -hmm. Two questions. One, do you keep doing, do you keep practicing anesthesia? And two, would you want, even though you wouldn't need to, would you want to come up with a new device? I mean, have you enjoyed this process enough that you think, I want to do another one? I don't know what it is yet, but I'd love to. I'll tell you um, a couple questions. I would still practice. It, obviously, I think it would be a different, uh, <laughs> a a different schedule. You know, I mean, I, <laughs> would I take call? And, you know, you know yes, my, my, my schedule would certainly be different. But 
you know, our operating room is my inspiration, right? We all have challenges we come across and the initial the initial ways to solve them, I could test myself there or, or, or kind of with the concepts to, 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 to solve that problem. So I would probably continue to practice, uh, but it would be with a different, uh, a different schedule. And uh, I, I think that would be ideal actually. And coming up with another one, the nice thing about that, I would have the inspiration, but I would also have the know-how. I mean, from, from where I started to get to here, it would be a, a tenth of the time. I mean, it just, I know all the people who to call now. I don't have to interview 10 different, you know, I have a national sales guy. He knows everybody, you know, it's just, I'd call Greg right away rather than interviewing all these people. And then how to even come up with those names, interview and everything else, the injection motor, my manufacturer distributors. And I've, I've, I've come across a lot of people that maybe didn't make sense now, but I would know how to call, to call them if I had a little bit different challenge. So the process would be much less frustrating because you know, a lot of the dead ends are just because I didn't call the right person or for, for whatever reason, either they are, don't produce a quality of work I want, or that's just not exactly their niche. So yeah, I would do that again. Awesome. What about, and again, since I'm so inexpert on this, this might be a ridiculous question, but what about going public? Is that something that might happen? Uh, that's not my plan. You know, uh, there would be a whole nother set of challenges, you know, that would, that would really, you know, challenges to the company, much less flexibility to, to kind of just do what you want when you're running the company, when you have, there are different rules for public companies. And uh, so that that I would much prefer if I have to sell to sell to uh, another medical device company, uh, then, then go public. Gotcha. Well, Trevor, is there anything that I didn't ask you because I wouldn't even know about it, but that as the expert in this process, you think, oh, you know, I want people to know, or do you think we covered it all? So, you know, I guess my summary would be if someone has an idea, um, hey, you know, uh, I, I see a problem. I think I have a solution. I'd say a couple bits of advice. The first step is make sure it's not already out there, right? Don't start spending money and time do a really good search to see if it's out there. Get on Google patents and search there. Maybe someone invented it and it never caught any traction because for whatever reason, even though it seems like a good solution, people won't buy it. Um, so I would definitely, definitely do your research. Um, you know, they talk about finding a mentor um, and that's, that's true. Finding the right mentor is not easy though. You know, there's, and so talk with a lot of people, you know, maybe you don't have one mentor, maybe take someone who's good at business and someone who's good at engineering and you have to piece together the information, but, but talk to a lot of people, I would say would be uh, another step. You're going to do a bunch of self-education. If you're thinking about either, even if you're just going to go to another big company, you know, you, you know, your options, know, know what that looks like. Maybe read a little bit about when they acquire products, uh, reach out to people about it. Um, and then if you're thinking about doing anything on your own, you're going to get a good idea of cost up front. Uh, you don't want to stall out in the middle of it. And I can tell you, there's a lot of people that reach out to me um, that have have, that have patents, that have paid for the patents, and they're stuck with their product. They can't get it anywhere. They either can't do the cost or they can't get in with the distribution partner. Um, know your market, right? You know, how many of these would you sell, you know, and how much money could a potential company have? So uh, know your market, know the, the complexity of the device. Um, you know, that would be one other thing. And finally, don't be, don't be in too much of a rush, you know, get things right, get the information you need. Don't sign a contract with the first person. Uh, don't be in a rush to get it market, gather your information and prepare yourself before you make any steps. Because 
we're not trained for this, you know, and, and you're vulnerable. And not only could you lose your money, but you could get in trouble too. You know, you could, you could uh, do something that you could be liable for. So for all those reasons, be as cautious with this as you would be in your perfect, you know, our, our other main profession. Yeah, that's an, a wonderful summary. Thank you. Yeah. And you bring up a good point. So just tell me from the time that you first started sketching till today, how long is that? That was, I had my first meeting in July, 2016. So, you know, going on five years. Five years. Okay. So you're not kidding. This is a process to do it right. Takes some serious time. Um, and it certainly sounds like you've done it right. Well, Trevor, thank you. This has been really interesting. And I think people will, will love this. Um, let's turn to the portion of our show where we make random recommendations. Um, do you have something uh, for the folks in the audience that uh, is unrelated to medicine and anesthesia, but that uh, you'd recommend they check out? A random recommendation would be, you know, my wife is always cold on the couch. She's always sitting there and complaining she's cold. So this year for Christmas, I bought her an old-fashioned electric blanket. I hadn't thought of it in a few years, and I don't know why it popped in my head, but I bought her this electric blanket. And uh, not only did she love it right away, but my kids had never heard of such a thing. You know, I mean, it was like, as a kid, I felt like people knew of them. And I came home from work one day, and all four of my kids and my wife were on the love seat, this tiny love seat under the electric blanket. And the part that was laying on the ground, my dog was laying on. I mean, it was the most novel thing to them. And so, you know what? It is pretty nice to sit under an electric blanket. I had forgot about it. So I would recommend for 30 bucks, you can get yourself a decent electric blanket and I think you'll love it. Do you have a, I, I, I told you before we, we started recording here that I almost got my wife one because she also loves to be warm and hates to be cold. And I didn't partly because I just couldn't, there's a lot out there. They vary in price. I didn't know what was the quality and what wasn't. Do you have a recommendation for the, like, what's the one you bought that you like? I, I believe it's made by Sunbeam. I got it off Amazon and I, it's a, I picked the size. It was a twin bed size. So something that would, you know, kind of fit on the couch. It wouldn't be too large, but it was, you know, one of those ones with 35,000, uh, five-star reviews. So yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's worked out. So, uh, that would be something that I think, uh, your wife, your spouse, your kids, whatever, even your dog would like. So <laughs> I love it. That is awesome. Well, thank you for that recommendation. Um, I am going to recommend a book that I just finished that my wife um, read and recommended to me. It's called The Vanishing Half. Uh, I, I don't um, know if you've heard of it. I'm going to tell you in one second uh, who the author is. It is, uh, but it's a wonderful book. It's by Britt Bennett. Um, that's B-E-N-N-E-T-T. Uh, called the vanishing half it's incredibly well written it is it's a novel um it's but it's okay. um kind of fairly historically accurate in how it's based through following uh, and i don't want to give too much away but it follows a a family through different generations and um kind of different parts of the country and uh different historical events and it's really well written and really interesting um so highly recommend it uh, when's it set for a good read. what time it is it set? starts in the um or at least the beginning generation is uh, kind of in the 40s to 50s, post okay. in, kind of post-war, and then it goes up into the 80s to early 90s. Okay, awesome. Um, for, I guess that's like the third generation of this family. So really, really interesting. All right, and we have two listener recommendations uh, today. Um, I've been remiss in not, uh, not shouting these out. So... Um, from Kathy Kunis, we have a um, recommendation of a series called The Bureau. Uh, it's on the Sundance channel. It's a French, uh, about the French version of the CIA. She says it's kind of like Homeland, but in French. 
Sounds interesting. Uh, Homeland was great, so this sounds like it would be worth checking out. Thank you, Kathy. And then uh, another listener, Dan Hook, and Dan, I hope I'm saying your name right, um, just starting CRNA school, says he read, uh, he read Make It Stick by Henry Rodiger. And also, I guess there's multiple authors by Mark McDaniel and Peter Brown. He says his program required him to read it, and it was phenomenal. He says as much as he loves learning, he never knew there was science to learning, and he's so glad he read this book before starting an educational adventure. So check it out. Make it stick is the name of the book. All right. Thanks to our audience members, and feel free to shout out a recommendation to us anytime. You can send it on Twitter. You can send it on email. But send them to us, and uh, if we are interested, we will uh, shout it out on the air. Um, well, Trevor, thank you. As I said, this has been fantastic, and we'll put your contact information, your website, um, on the show notes for people to check out. And um, I'm sure you'll be getting uh, some emails and requests for help. Hopefully, you won't regret making that offer. Uh, <laughs> good luck with the ongoing um, build and uh, and selling of the product. And um, I am going to see if I can get us some at my, uh, at my shop, because I think they'd be fantastic. So thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Jed. This was awesome. I'm, I really, uh, I feel honored that I could have been here because uh, you got a great show and uh, I think people are learning a lot from it. All right. That was really fantastic. I absolutely loved that interview and I thought Trevor just was incredibly eloquent about his process and incredibly generous in his offer to help other people out who who are interested. Imagine uh, not having to go through everything he went through because you can pick his brain about it. Um, it's really great of him. So uh, let us know what you thought. Go to the website, com. You can leave a comment and uh, let us know what you thought. And others can learn from what you have to say. Have you also invented something? Um, let us know. And uh, we'd love to hear. You can also, of course, join the conversation on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jay Walpaw, and we're at ACRAC Podcast. If you are a fan of the show, please consider going to, you know, I always say iTunes, but I guess it's not called iTunes anymore. I think it's called Apple Podcasts or Apple Music. But please consider going to your friendly neighborhood podcast store, wherever you get your podcast, and leaving a comment and a rating. It helps others find the show. If you'd like to support the making of the show, please consider going to patreon.com slash ACRAC. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if it's just a dollar or two that you pledge, it makes a big difference, and we really appreciate it. You can also make a donation anytime by going to paypal.me slash ACRAC or looking for Jay Wolpaw on Venmo. We really appreciate all of you who are already patrons and have already made donations. It really means a lot. Big thanks, as always, to Dr. Brian Park, who is our tech lead, and to our social media manager, April Liu, and to our uh, former uh, media manager, who still helps us out with uh, some of the show notes, Dr. Kimia Kashkuli. Our original ACRAG music is by the one and only Dr. Dennis Quo, and you can check out his website at studymusicproject.com. All right, that is it for today. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Trevor Gibbs, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Thanks for listening. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. <laughs>